Good day and welcome to What Scares Startups, the podcast that explores the fears, anxieties, and neuroses that beset founders of all shapes, sizes, and descriptions. I'm Matt Toner. I'm your host. I'm here with producer Mike. And we want to talk to you today about how startups can recognize, confront, overcome, and harness all those things that keep us awake at night. And to do so, we've got a large series of especially impressive guests that will unpack their wisdom, their learnings, the things that frighten them, and the things they've overcome. So stay tuned. This is What Scares Startups. So something you're going to hear a lot on this series as you check in, as you move back and forth, is this idea of, I've got a gig, it's okay. I'm at a company that you've heard of. I've built stuff you've maybe experienced, and that's okay too. But it's not okay with me because I want to do something else. I want to do it kind of my way, even if it isn't groundbreaking, revolutionary, hip-shaking, new genre-defining stuff. I want to do it my own way, and I want to learn what it's like to do it that way. And I want to live the dream a bit differently. You know, I don't necessarily need the soccer fields and dog care. Uh, what I want is my idea, however simple or however complicated, to be out there on a platform by itself where anybody can pick it up at any time and enjoy it. And at the same time, put a little bit of money in my pockets. Today we're talking with Ryan Dennison of Playful Fox Games, who is definitely doing it his way. And I think he's found, as you'll see, that sometimes the best way to do it your way is to do it slow, to do it carefully to not make those compromises because, you know, the only race is against ourselves and the only clock we hear is really the one in our head. So let's talk to Ryan, let's talk to him about what it's like to leave the big AAA game space and move into one that's a lot more modest, but your own. So hey, on today's podcast, we are talking with Ryan Dunnison, who is the founder of Playful Fox Games out here on the West Coast. And he's very much living the stereotypical West Coast lifestyle on an island surrounded by tall trees and cool waters and making creative stuff. I love Ryan's story because he is, again, kind of the archetypical game industry founder. He started off in the trenches, in the cubes, at Electronic Arts here in Burnaby, playtesting various games, ranging from the great to the oh my god, I'm sure. He went on from there to do more testing and eventually breaking into the design side for a couple mobile studios here in town that are kind of name brand. Decided to share his knowledge for a time with other young and hopeful game designers and game creators, because it's always good to pay it back. And he's been the founder and driving force behind Playful Fox Games, for I think almost six years now, which I'm sure has gone by in the blink of an eye, but it does come back to one of the things that I'll often talk to people about is that when you start a company, you aren't you know, going to start your company, go public in 18 months, retire to Barbados by year three. Uh, it's a marriage. It's a commitment. Uh, you can go for six years before you break through and break into that really interesting acceleration period. Not at all uncommon. So, hey, Ryan, Welcome to the show. Delightful to have you on today. Very much looking forward to what uh, what's keeping you up at night and why and how you think you're going to break through. Yeah, thank you for the intro. That's fantastic. I would love to tell you a bit about those things. Where would you like to start? Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, right now, you are the top of the Playful Fox Pyramid. Whether that's Egyptian sized or Aztec size or table decoration side, we don't know. I'd like to hear a bit about your experience in the trenches 
as a tester for bigger or smaller companies. Because, you know, for those of you that are listening that may not know, that was the traditional route in to the industry. Like maybe you got education, you had a degree or diploma from a design school, but typically it's into the salt mine and testing games. I'd love to hear a bit about that experience. And what of that experience drove you to think, I can do better? <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, I think the time I came into the industry was a little bit of a weird time in general for us in the industry. It was kind of a turning point, especially locally, because the financial crisis had happened and people were still kind of both recovering and or going under based on the ramifications around that. So I was actually in school for game design at the Art Institute kind of during that time period. It looked hopeful and then things started looking less hopeful as I was getting close to graduation time. So uh, to try to get a head start on kind of industry experience, I signed up for playtest sessions at EA, which they were offering basically free games for coming in for a few hours to play certain games and give them feedback. (laughs) So you're basically working for your own personal version of crack cocaine. (laughs) Come play, we'll give you more stuff to play with. Pretty much, yeah. So it it was a pretty structured experience, although each opportunity was very unique. The games ranged from things like Need for Speed to Fuse was another game, which was like a third-person cover shooter style game, and a couple of other games like that. And so it was kind of all over the place. And the point in the game at which you'd come in to test could be anywhere from, I wouldn't say quite alpha, probably more like a beta state to a pretty near uh, final product. So you weren't really sure what you were going to get into as soon as you came in. I even play tested, I think, the Origin mobile interface at one point. Um, so it was kind of an interesting experience just to kind of see, oh, what are the different things that you might experience in the industry if I were to go into AAA or to testing in AAA, which I ended up doing for a little while after that. And yeah, it was it was just for games. So uh, you would hope that EA's library at the time had games that you wanted, because otherwise right. it was a few hours of probably not much that you were getting out of it. A few hours of hell, and you get the Nintendo DS version of My Little Pony or something. Yeah, I think I got the 3DS version of The Sims 3 or something. <laughs> it's one of them. Uh, and I picked up the, the Need for Speed, the run, because I tested it earlier on and I wanted a copy just to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the funny thing is people that may be listening and maybe they have children that are of this disposition might think that being a play tester for a video game company is kind of a dream come true. And what they don't realize, and you're alluding to, is it's playing with a lot of broken glass. Like nothing works. You're there to find the things that are wrong. And if you're playing like an alpha of a game... It's all wrong. It's all bananas. And you just have to sit there, play, write it down, play, write it down, replicate. A bit of a grind, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't think I can talk about specifics about what I tested, but definitely there were a few instances where I would be playing something and your vehicle or whatever just disappears and you suddenly reappear somewhere else. (laughs) Or things that are, there's just no art yet for certain aspects. So things still have uh, either broken shaders. So you get like whatever the default shader is for the program, usually like some kind of bright pink or bright gray Mm. or whatever. It's not really a pleasant experience usually in terms of like, looks good, feels good until you get kind of the near end product stuff. And even then 
there's so much that they're changing and tuning that that experience doesn't usually reflect quite what the end game looks like. <laughs> mm-hmm. It definitely strikes me there's, even today, some disruption that could happen there for the better. I remember once when I was in that end of the industry, a fellow game director asked me to test an early build of a game he was working on. And it was a simple get into this thing, shoot this guard dog, open this thing up, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, the offensive value of the weapon you were given was infinitesimally small. So you had to sit there shooting the dog for like an hour before you could actually overcome it. And I was thinking, I can't get any further. Am I doing something wrong? Is it a trap I'm supposed to trigger? Yeah, it's it, it sort of sucks the fun out of games if you're not careful. But by the same token, like I've heard of a lot of people that work at the early stage of creative industries that go on to do big things. And they often say it's those grindy early experiences that show them that they could probably do better. Like they would look at their own ideas or their own work or their own process and saying, you know, I think I've got something better to contribute. And that's what really kicks off their journey. You know, I mean, the seeds are sown. Like Quentin Tarantino, famously, he was working in a video store, talking with other film nerds about great films. And that was the soil from which Reservoir Dogs sprang. Yeah, I actually also worked in a video store for a few months. But right before Roger's video, the local chain shut down, I was able to work in my local video store that I had rented games from. Um, So that was a pretty fun experience as well to be able to recommend things like that. I, I always had a passion for game design and the school actually gave me an interesting perspective, basically showing me that you can do it. Uh, Because when I was growing up, it was hard to envision myself in game development because in the mid-90s, games had gotten quite complex and game engines were not. Um, And so uh, development looked like it would become kind of impossible as it progressed. Luckily, things changed. Game engines got better and more user-friendly. And the school kind of helped me see that. By the time I got to playtesting, I was more interested in what did the internals of a large company look like. And it was actually my first QA job that showed me that, oh, I should look in a kind of a different direction. (laughs) I I also got my first QA job at EA. It was kind of an on-call position. And I went in for my first session. And it was in a period of time where EA was going through a transition here in Burnaby. And so things were kind of in disrepair in the QA department. Like wires were hanging from the ceiling and you had to crawl under the desk to switch over different components. Do you mean metaphorical wires or do you mean literal wires? Literal. Like there was, you know, those, uh, I don't, they're not asbestos anymore, but they look like asbestos panels you have on the roof, like the foam tiles. Half of them were displaced and there were like literally cables hanging down. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it wasn't a great time for the company. I, as I uh, know from people who were there and people who are there now, having been back and seeing campus now, it's a way nicer place Mm -hmm. to work, but definitely that experience opened my eyes to there has to be something else. This is not where I wanted to be. And so I very quickly made the decision to jump over to the mobile space where the companies were a little bit more growing and agile at the time. Uh, And so that was kind of my first experience in like realizing, yeah, maybe this industry is big. You can choose more than the thing that most people go for. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, it, I do think those tough circumstances, and, you know, timing's everything. You join a company that's on an uptick or a downtick, that has a gigantic change in the flavor you're experiencing, and that's just timing and circumstance. But, you know, it's interesting you had that notion to, you know, go to another smaller place where people may have told you, what are you doing? You're, you're in electronic arts. That's the mecca. You've, you're solid. Why would you want to change? And did you get much pushback by going from, again, from electronic arts, which is safety of a sort, to a mobile studio, which is a lot more skittish, and now your own mobile studio, which is like, you know, Tom Hanks and Castaway levels of risky did you get pushback from people in your environment, like former profs, girlfriends, parents? You don't need to name names. I'm just curious what the response was. Yeah, um, I haven't really thought about that too much because honestly, the Vancouver industry is kind of weird that way, especially at that time. There were very few AAA studios in the area because several had shut down. And so all of the mobile studios that were growing presented this kind of new opportunity. And as Vancouver has progressed as an industry, I, I've done a bit of historical stuff about uh, the local industry, but um, the industry was kind of founded from people leaving the large companies to start their own thing because of things that they didn't enjoy and whatever. They thought that they could do it differently. And that kind of mentality seems to be pretty prevalent among all of the smaller studios in the city. And so they really encouraged getting out there, trying all of the different aspects of the industry and they like that people kind of move around a bit because you kind of see different parts of the experience. From like a parent's and outsider's perspective, I think that there's definitely, I wouldn't say that they discouraged it so much as they just didn't really understand. Like you bring up the name of the company and they would be like, what's that? And you're like, oh, and then you have to go and explain it for a while. Whereas <laughs> if you just said EA, they'd be like, oh, that's really cool. Right. So you're saying... Hey, you were at Electronic Arts. They've got the soccer field, the doggy daycare. And now you're working on Pot Farmer? Like, explain that to me. Yeah, it's kind of like part of moving to a smaller studio. You kind of expect that things are going to be a little bit more on the edge of the visual spectrum of the industry. And in some ways that affords you a lot. You can do a lot more in that space, especially when you're starting off, I found. You have a lot more freedom in terms of design input, even in QA, talking about processes within the company. You can actually talk to anybody at any level and feel very comfortable approaching people. Whereas if you're in a much larger company, they have kind of a hierarchy in place to kind of slow some of that stuff down. And it, it makes sense once you get to a size of 3,000 people or so, you can't really have all 299 people coming up to the top of the company and asking and giving input. So I can understand that, but yeah, it definitely being in that kind of like smaller company gives you a lot more exposure to a lot of different things. And I think that that was really beneficial to my experience. This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at shredcapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. You know, some people that do take the more entrepreneurial journey, they almost express as a value that if they're feeling comfortable, they're in the wrong place. There's something isn't right because they need to be pushing against some sort of boundary 
to feel like they're really trying to create something new as opposed to just recreate something that's somebody else's model. You know, they'll come at it in a different way. And I kind of think that the pandemic has maybe kind of ripped the Band-Aid off that a bit where everyone's had to do different things in different ways. Do you, do you feel that had an impact on your own thinking, like of that place of comfort versus, well, look, it's all up for grabs. I want to lean into this anyway. So I don't know if the pandemic had me change that mindset because I kind of already had that mindset as you're kind of alluding to. Even when I was going into the mobile space and the social gaming space, which I was uh, at the beginning of Eastside Games, the company was kind of setting into a kind of routine at that point. They've changed since then and a lot and that kind of is typical. But at that time, I felt like things were kind of getting locked too much into a routine and I was wanting to see some more change happening. And so I was trying to pitch a bunch of ideas. Like they have an internal pitching process and not every single time it came up, I pitched at least one idea. I think a couple of them I helped other people pitch as well. And I ended up pitching like two or three in a couple of them. And just to try to get things to keep moving, I really like to see change, like to see growth. And so although there's an appeal to some degree in sort of the mentality of stability and safety in your job. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where like, if you see it stay still for too long, you know that the industry is going to pass you. So it's one of those areas where I, I feel much more comfortable trying to be closer to the edge, not necessarily be at the cutting, cutting edge, because there's too much opportunity to fail in some ways at that point. But like right towards the backside of that cutting edge is kind of like the perfect place to be because you can get some learnings off the people who really jump out there and then you at least can kind of see a path forward. Whereas if you're right at the cutting edge, there may not be a path forward and you may not realize that yet. And that's a little bit more frightening than I am comfortable with, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the Oregon Trail model, I guess. You don't want to be the guy who's sort of the skeleton on the path in terms of being so early that it's the next people that find you. You don't want to eat the first poisonous berry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, it's also something I think where, you know, we talk about failing fast and you're sort of in the, the front part of your career. And you've had some corporate experiences now. You're doing your own thing now. Do you feel that in terms of enriching your own personal or human or knowledge capital, how much bigger are the learnings by doing it yourself than you would have gleaned from university or college or from your time in the trenches with the bigger, more established companies? Like, is it exponentially bigger? Like, are you learning in a way that's profound and maybe a bit teeth rattling at times? Or is it still kind of like, you know, there's just different lessons. You get them from different places. It all adds up to a buffet, blah, blah, blah. To me, it's a bit of both. I definitely learned a lot in certain ways from school that I didn't learn when I was in the industry. And in the industry, I learned some things that I wouldn't have learned in school. And now running a company, I think there are things running a company that I couldn't learn in either of those two other places, but there's also a lot of things that I wouldn't be able to learn doing this myself that I got out of the other two pieces. Just like you kind of being at another company and working on a bunch of different projects, failing fast on things internally gives you the ability to do it in a more safe way in a, a lot of places. And that lets you kind of see where things can break down in a much more structured environment. Whereas when you're doing it yourself for the first time, I feel like if I had just failed my first time on my own, in my own space, I may not have learned from that as well as working at a company where you get a little bit more distance to kind of see things. 
But you also definitely, like running a company, just so many issues come up that you wouldn't see in any other situation that, yeah, you're, you're definitely rattling your teeth often because you're trying to figure out, oh, I didn't realize I needed to do X, Y, or Z for this process or this company or whatever, whether it's like developing for a platform or it's trying to figure out, oh, how do the expertise of people actually overlap? Because when you're working at a company that's kind of chosen for you, or you, you know that like, okay, you have these three engineers on your team and these two designers and their skill set seems to work out so that you can build this project. That's obviously a little bit different when you're running a company and you're trying to figure out what people's skill sets are. That's one of those things that's just like, oh, interesting. How do I screen for that? Or how do I look for these things? That's something you kind of understand you need to know when you're looking at running a company, but actually running it, figuring out how to <laughs> deal with that situation, it's, it's a bit, you just kind of have to try it and see what happens. Like I, I tried to follow kind of best practices based on research and my time in the industry and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, there's still room that you just kind of have to, you try out one solution and see if it worked and you go, oh, mm, maybe I could have improved this for the future or change this thing around. And kind of same thing with just like, you, you have all the same problems that you have with development in a company, except now you also have to think about, oh, how do we come up with our deadlines? Where do we mm -hmm. start looking for different routes to get this thing out there? And when is a good time to cut? Whereas when you're in a company, you kind of have a very strict okay, this is the budget for this project. And you can maybe push that a little bit if you like really fight for it. But you know that like you're going to fall within maybe 10 to 20% of that budget in the end. Um, and so that kind of lets you know as you're going like, oh yeah, this is kind of where we're going to end up. And this is kind of like what we're going to have to cut as you're going. Whereas when you're on your own and you do those things that are fluctuating a bit more, it's a bit harder to make those decisions, especially when it's kind of your idea and you're trying to make sure that your idea stays your idea and doesn't right. end up as something else. Yes, yeah, so there are, I mean, you put it really well. There are those executional risks that come with making a game, let's say, right? Like those are fairly standard executional risks. But you take on the entrepreneurial risk on top of that, which is the which way is the compass pointing? You know, are we on or off track? And and you're right, it's tough to create the the sounding boards that are built into a bigger entity. So in the absence of these sounding boards, what's the toughest call you've had to make so far as the founder? Like the one that you're like, eh, that one I wrestled with. I'm still not sure I got it right, but I had to make a choice and, and here's how I went with it. That's a tough one. <laughs> there could be many, so you can pick your favorite. Yeah, there are a bunch of different little things. I, I don't know if there's one huge one yet, um, and I'm hoping there won't be. But there's definitely been a couple of key turning points in this process. Early on, it was probably the decision about which platform I was going to go on. Initially, we had thought, well, when I was first coming up with this idea, it was very much geared towards a phone. And when I started looking at what the possibilities were in that space, and just like knowing what I knew about visibility on the platform, the advertising process and all that, I started looking at other opportunities and we ultimately decided on a different platform as our main target and then kind of keeping that as an option. So we had to kind of adjust for allowing for a lower spec device while still targeting something a little bit more powerful. And that decision has definitely 
had a lot of ramifications on the process. So we had to change the scope quite significantly. It meant that the deadlines would have to shift way back. Just uh, like getting a lot of features that we were considering into there, we had to reevaluate which processes made the most sense on the newer platform, especially if we were not going with a free-to-play model, which we are not. There was just a lot of ramifications to that decision. I wouldn't say I regretted it. I actually think it, it was definitely the right decision. It just meant that things kind of had to change in a pretty drastic way. And I think more drastic than I realized when we made that decision. So there are those moments for a lot of founders where they cross the Rubicon. And you put it pretty well. It's like, okay, now that decision echoes through time. And you can't foresee the different things that are going to pop up. but, But you do come back to that initial point where you said, well, we decided this and now we have to see it through. You know, you can pivot, but some of those decisions aren't pivotable. You know, like they're there. Yeah, I mean, ultimately we could pivot back at this point, but then the amount of work that we've put in would have been, it wouldn't be completely wasted, but there would definitely be a lot of wasted effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, and at this point, it wouldn't make sense. And that's one of those things that you just have to kind of be like, okay, well, we've crossed that bridge and we have to be happy with the decision. And I, I am happy with the decision. But it is one of those things that you just have to be comfortable knowing that you're kind of leaving something else behind when you make right. that call. So in that vein, and maybe it's related, what are the things that tonight you're going to go home, what's going to keep you up a little bit? Like the, the reality you're dealing with today, maybe it's connected to that inception point earlier or there's some fresh hell that awaits you. Like you know, right now, what's on your mind as the founder? I mean, you sound pretty balanced. You know, it seems like you're dealing with the ups and downs pretty well. So there may not be anything existential, or it might just be something that might seem trivial, or you think, oh, why am I, why is this bothering me? But, you know, maybe it's not trivial. Yeah, I mean, it's, it isn't that trivial. I, it's easy for me to kind of like speak about a lot of these points because it's things that I talk about a lot. And I try to be very transparent with the people who I'm working with about similar things, like what our issues are and how we kind of got here and things like that, just to keep myself honest and make sure that everybody understands what's going on. But yeah, I mean, I struggled with depression for many, many years. And I think motivation has always been a a little bit of a challenge, especially when the goal is clear, but there may be like smaller goals on the way there that may not be. And that can actually mean that things look a lot bigger uh, than they really are. And until you kind of sit down and tackle them, that's a real issue. So I kind of always struggle with that, uh, sitting down, picking up my work again, and kind of like looking at what problems I need to tackle, especially where I'm at, where we're quite far in the development process. I'm trying to figure out a whole bunch of different solutions to different problems that are out there from both development perspectives and all sorts of other things to do with running a company. And it's just a matter of like, I think the biggest thing that I struggle with is just kind of choosing where to start because there's just like every task looks so much bigger than it is until you like sit down and do it. And that can then kind of spin you out a bit in some ways. Like you just kind of load yourself up with too much in your mind. And then you kind of like go, oh, why am I doing this? But I've managed to figure out a pretty good way of tackling that, which is just to basically make a choice about what it is that you're going to do each week. And if you structure it that way and you make one task kind of a priority and then you can switch it every week, I find that that can give you a good relatively balanced way to tackle the different areas of running a company so that you're not trying to do everything all at once. Because I think it's some people can. I've seen a couple people who are able to do that. 
I don't understand how. I, I don't know how you right. can hold every ball in the air at the same time while also trying to calculate huge equations. Like, to me, you, you kind of need to take one task on at a time, and that's kind of what I try to do. Right. Well, you know what I did when I started my first company? In the kind of like, as you say, you're juggling knives. And some people have seemed very good at it. I suspect they're not as good as they look, but they seem really good at it when you watch them go. I would have the things start to crowd in, you know, like the worries, the things about banks and people and all those. And it would be like a rising tide. So what I would said to myself early on was, okay, I'm going to give myself one day a week where I will worry about all those things that are probably not easily solved. But I'm going to take a day and I'll just allow them in for that one day. And when that day's over, back to work and get on with the other stuff. And I found that was actually kind of helpful. I never knew what day it was going to be, but I'd wake up one morning and I'd go, oh, today's the day. <laughs> and I just learned to keep it within that boundary. And it really, it kind of helped, you know, because otherwise you're right, you can just get overwhelmed, right? It's, you take on a lot. Yeah, uh, well, one of the things I did, I didn't quite do what you have done, which is an interesting way as well, but I, I kind of, I just write a lot of lists of all the things that I need to do kind of in a short-term window. And then I try to knock an item off the list roughly every day or more if I can. But if there's one or two tasks I don't get to, I try not to be super hard about it on myself. I kind of like look at it for a day and kind of go, okay, well, why didn't I accomplish this? Is this going to be a problem for me going forward? What can I do to make this an easier task? And I try to break that down a little bit further and see if I can make it more manageable for me for the next week. And that's, I think, been really helpful in the process. And so far, it's been pretty successful. But uh, yeah. <laughs> All good stuff. And, you know, you do seem like you've found skills and ways to cope. And you're not lying curled up in a fetal ball too many times a day. All that aside, because we've been talking about the negative so far and how to overcome it. And what are the things you're really like? fiercely proud about now, like despite or perhaps because of all the backstory that, you know what, it's all worth it because. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm proud that I've been able to do at this point. When I started a company, my initial iteration of it was just as a sole proprietorship. So it was just me. And I was just trying to see if I could make an app and get it out there. And my first attempt at that wasn't successful. I was overwhelmed and probably underskilled at that time. And I decided to go back to the industry, get a little bit more experience before doing it again. This time around, I feel like I learned all the lessons I needed to learn. There's been a lot more progress. Things really started rolling and we've had a lot of good opportunities to work with some great people. There's been a lot of interesting situations that we've been able to get into because of our jumping onto certain things that were going on. Uh, I can't really talk about some of those things too much yet. But yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot more in the last three years of getting this game running than I have learned on any other project in my entire time in the industry, I think. And I think that that's a huge accomplishment. And we've been able to get from inception to right about an alpha state now pretty well. We've got everything covered. We have all of the things we wanted to get in place in place. Some of the nice to haves kind of fell off, but I mean, that happens. But 
there's just been a lot of like great little things that we've been able to accomplish. Things like coming up with the plan for how we wanted to tackle all of our games going forward in terms of how we're going to structure our projects when we use Unity. We may choose other engines in the future, but right now that's our decision. Things around the communication devices that we have chosen, how we've managed to cope with obviously COVID uh, and trying to figure out how to deal with long distance working. Just a lot of little things like that. There isn't like one big thing I would say. Well, there is sort of, but I can't really talk about it yet. But uh, we, we got approved for something that was really nice to get approved for. And I was not certain we would be able to, um, especially when we were at such an early state when we tried to get it. Um, and that, that was a huge driving force as to why we ended up just deciding on the platform we did. And that was, it was really, it was validating what we wanted to set out with. And that was a huge accomplishment. Even if the project were to completely fall flat today, which it won't, that would be a huge accomplishment just personally. Yeah, exactly. And I love the parenthetical, which it won't, which is definitely the sign of a true founder, you know, uh, the commitment to the vision and the resilience to kind of keep pulling forward and understanding that the, you know, the goal is attainable and being able to pass that along and be contagious with the people on your crew. So listen, let's leave it there. That's a wonderful bookend to put on this. Just before we let you go, is there anything you want to plug, like stuff you're working on now that you can talk about? Or should we just circle back to you in a few months when things are more clear and get the epilogue? That's a great question. I think... Well, you can follow us on Twitter at PlayfulFoxGames, and you can check out our website, www.playfulfoxgames.com. We're currently trying to build a cool beverage bar simulation game called Animal Bar. We're hoping we can get some more things to announce on that soon, but I don't have anything for you right now. So, (laughs) (laughs) Then circle back it is. Ryan Dennison, founder of Playful Fox Games out here on the West Coast. Check out their stuff on Twitter if you are into the game space and want to see something new and unique. I've got a bit of perspective on their project. I think it's going to be outstanding. So we'll leave it right there. Thank you again, and we'll tune in next week for another episode with a new guest. Thank you for having me. So I'll just say it, and Mike, you tell me if you disagree on this one, but I really feel there's a part two here. I really feel there's like a follow-on. I feel like we've only just got to set up with this episode because it, it almost feels, if you're thinking about the movie version of this, like the, the epic journey is that the, the heroes have really just only started to look for Mount Doom. You know, like I feel like there's been some trials, some challenges, figuring of things as Ryan and his team make their merry way. But I feel like the real epic, climactic conflict and character shaping stuff still lies ahead for this crew. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, I think part of the joy and excitement of the startup journey is the fact that it is a rocky journey and it has nothing to do with the team. It has nothing to do with the idea. It just has to do with the way that the space is, the way that you know, starting a business is when you're trying to pursue a new idea, whether it's a new game, whether it's a new product, whether it's a new service or whatever it might be, that's just kind of the way that it works. And for some people that happens right away. And for some people it happens a little bit more down the line, but it definitely sounds to me like, and all the power to him, but it sounds like Ryan's experience so far has been almost a purely positive one. Obviously there's been a little bit of hiccups, but I feel like I'm going to be really excited to hear what his perspective and what his approaches are when he sort of hits those first few hurdles once he's you know he's still in the fairly early stages of development it seems and 
and inevitably that's going to create some challenges. And, you know, even after product one goes out the door and it's smooth sailing, what's going to happen for product two? All of those things are challenges that everybody faces. And as you mentioned, I feel like there's going to be an interesting part two follow up to see if the path stays smooth or if he hits those bumps and how he handles those bumps. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you are formed by crisis. Your character is defined by the enemies you best. I, I think that's the head for Ryan and his gang. And I, I honestly think it'll be a much more interesting part two when we get a chance to do that after they've had a bit more journey under their belt. But until that time, uh, I'm Matt Toner. This is What Scares Startups. Thank you for joining us. And hope we have you come back for another episode uh, in the weeks to come. Take care. Okay, so that will do it. We don't got next. The pod is done for the day. We'd like to thank our guest. We'd like to thank producer Mike in the control room for all of his thoughts and feedback and wisdom, as well as his technical skills. This was What Scares Startups, a pod that explores the neuroses, the anxieties, the formless things that go bump in the night for startups and founders and investors throughout this tech ecosystem. Whether you're in Silicon Valley, New York, or Saskatoon, it's a common shared neuroses that we're all working very hard to overcome. So you can check us out online, wherever good podcasts are found. And if you want to check out our sponsors at Shred Capital, that is shredcapital.com and found on all your favorite social platforms, your LinkedIn's, your Facebook's, your Twitter's. We tweet, we share. Hopefully you come back for the next episode. And if you have an idea or especially neurotic founder you'd like us to talk with, Please get in touch. That's all.